Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, it is a great honor to have Marley Bunch and Brittany Collins join the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to talk about the intersection of grief-responsive teaching and anti-bias, anti-racist teaching, developing our collective understanding of how to support students who have experienced trauma and loss increases our ability to develop classroom and school communities that support agency, equity, and understanding, as described in the PEBC teaching framework. Marley is an educator with over 15 years teaching experience. She holds two graduate degrees and is currently working on her doctoral degree from the University of Illinois. Her study illustrates the impact, the long history of segregation, Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation efforts had on the teaching experiences of black female educators, particularly between the years of 1950 and 1970. Brittany's work explores the impacts of grief, loss and trauma in the school system, as well as how innovative pedagogies from inquiry-based learning to identity development curricula can create conditions supportive of all learners. Brittany is the author of Learning from Loss, a Trauma-Informed Approach to Supporting Grieving Students, which was published in 2021. So it is so exciting to welcome both of you to the podcast. You are voracious writers, dear friends, teachers of writing, and individuals who care deeply about others. And I know from our conversations that you truly value the stories that each individual holds. And so let's start our conversation today by hearing your stories and the story of how you came to be such close colleagues and thought partners. So Brittany and I met at Smith College where we were both teaching. Uh, We were teaching a creative writing workshop. Um, I was the lead teacher and Brittany actually had been assigned as my teaching assistant. And I had no idea that she she herself was not a seasoned teacher because I immediately saw how dedicated um, and just educated and aware of classroom, good classroom pedagogies that she, um, she had under her belt already. So um, I asked her if we could just approach it as a team teaching situation. And um, we became fast friends and our, um, I think our hope for students quickly aligned and we found that students were so receptive to um, I think what they saw in our relationship too, which was really important, that collaborative um, peace and willingness to trust someone that you don't really know um, and work alongside them closely. So that's kind of how our story originated. And then um, I have been in education for 16 plus years. I've taught in all different types of school districts. I also do diversity, equity, and inclusion work for a mental health organization. Um, And so I think just those experiences coupled with my own uh, experience going through the school system, I guess, growing up and going to a private school 
um, the public school that I would have went to was not a desirable one and was labeled a dropout factory. So all of those things have kind of come together to really um, inform my lens of this work. I'm going to see if Brittany wants to jump in on our collective. Yeah, thank you, Marley. And thanks so much, Michelle, for having us here today. It's really a pleasure to be here and to be in this conversation and to connect with your audience. Um, I really value what Marley was saying, both about collaboration and also how her experiences as a student really informed her path as an educator. That's something that really resonates with me and my own path as well. So I have now been in the field for about five years, um, having learned from many mentors, Marley included. Um, I enter education um, in two sort of realms. So I teach writing to middle high school and also occasionally undergrad and grad students. So really the full kind of spectrum, secondary and post-secondary um, and feel very passionate about writing education, storytelling, identity development, and the ways in which you know, literature and, and writing practices um, create platforms for us to think about our identities, who we are, where we come from, what matters to us most in the world. And then the other part of my work is really in the social emotional learning and the grief responsive or trauma-informed realm. As you had mentioned, Michelle, um, I recently published my first book, Learning from Loss through Heinemann. Um, and even though this may seem you know, disconnected at first, perhaps from ELA, um, feels to me very connected with the same topics that we're thinking and talking about in terms of writing education and you know, what life experiences inform our identity and how we perceive and shape and contribute to the world. Um, so going back to my own path as a student, um, when I was 14, I lost my father to male breast cancer. It was the summer before my sophomore year in high school. Um, that was a time when my mom was also undergoing treatment for one of two breast cancer diagnoses and really experiencing bereavement and loss and also adolescent you know, development at the same time and during high school um, gave me this sort of insight into the ways in which grief, and I think we can expand that to also include any form of sort of adversity or trauma or um, stigmatized experience um, can be othering and also how school can be a space for healing, a space for connection, a space for understanding or not, right? And so I feel very fortunate to have had exposure to incredible mentors, you know, early on in life. And then of course, professional mentors like Marley um, later in life, who were very open to this sort of raw, honest connection and to um, supporting me in my own lost journey. At the same time, I also encountered, you know, adults who were probably caring, but maybe felt some discomfort around how to best approach a young person who is experiencing adversity or experiencing loss. Um, what do we say, right? And there's this kind of socialized silence around these types of experiences that as a young person, you can kind of internalize and feel a little bit like different or kind of weird around like, how do you own your own story? How do you communicate about what you're going through? Um, so all of these sort of issues are what ultimately inspired me to go into education, go into English, writing, et cetera, and think about how do we think about these intersections um, in a way that offers tools, actionable tools to caring adults in any realm of education, classroom teachers, school psychologists, youth workers, coaches, 
um, and ultimately also um, give those tools to students about how do we start to to think about who we are and own our stories, which is something that Marley and I really um, talk a lot about in our friendship and in our professional relationship. We've had opportunities to teach together um, since that that first time at Smith. Um, and this is really what I feel connects our pedagogies. And then thinking too, of course, about how grief, trauma, and then ABAR practices necessarily combine, right? You really can't have one without the other. Wow. I Thank agree you. with all, all of that. And I just wanted to add really quickly, because Brittany said something super important. I think when we start thinking about this work, that foundation of looking at your own positionality, Brittany and I talk a lot about that, right? Your own story and, and how that shapes what kind of educator you are and what kind of educator you hope to be. Um, because unlike Brittany, our, my situation is really the opposite. I did not have educators or mentors growing up, at least in the classroom space, who really were much concerned with what my academics looked like, much less my social emotional space. Um, and so I, I think that that has made, I went into teaching with, I'm going to do for students what was never done for me, so. I think it's really, I want to say, I think the word is refreshing to hear both of your stories and your perspectives and the ways in which all of that has come together into your professional identities and, and that passion you have for your work, both as individuals, but then also as a team. And so I think about our conversation today is, is there, is there a message? Is there a shared message that you'd like listeners to consider before we dive into kind of the, the nitty gritty of grief responsive teaching and ABAR pedagogy. What is, that, what is that message that you have for us today? I would say, listen to the stories and never underestimate the power of one, somebody's lived experiences and two, the power that you have as an educator to create a space that helps to um, cultivate healing, um, share those stories. I think it's one of the best tools that we have as educators um, and as people. I think a lot about uh, Brene Brown's quote, uh, people are hard to hate close up. And I love that quote because I think it's really, really true. Um, and allowing students to hear each other's stories, I think fosters healing. And I know that um, those have been healing moments for me as an educator, even just to bear witness to those. So I think the terminology and the learning piece is most worthwhile when it is in practice, practice through listening, through conversation, um, and then providing, um, you know, those brave spaces for that to occur. So thank you, Marley. I think that really is helpful for us to have that frame as we, as we dive into our conversation. Um, you just mentioned you know, terminology and learning, and we've already kind of thrown around some acronyms and some phrases. And I know that educators and school leaders are, you know, all over the country grappling with these constructs like SEL and grief responsive teaching. And is there a difference between ABAR pedagogy and culturally sustaining teaching? And it, when we think of all of that coming together, I know that, you know, Brittany, you're going to share some thinking around grief responsive teaching with us. And Marley, you're gonna help us think a little bit more about ABAR pedagogy, but let's just start with maybe some 
almost simple, I don't want to say simple definitions because neither, neither construct is simply defined, but let's just talk about what do we mean by those, by those terms today? And Brittany, if you might start by helping us think a little bit about what is grief responsive teaching? Absolutely. And Michelle, I'm happy to share the actual definition that I've sort of created and tried to operationalize through my own work and my own writing. Um, which is grief responsive teaching is a pedagogical and an interpersonal approach to teaching, learning, coaching, other forms of youth work that integrates both the science and stories of grief. So tying into what Marley was just saying about our kind of main message about stories, stories count, right? Lived experience counts. Um, so translating that into actionable classroom practices that support both young people's and adults' well-being in times of loss. So never wanting to lose sight. I always say that that the caring adults are also sort of subjects in this work, right? Where we also carry our own identities, our own loss experiences, our own sort of fears and strengths into the classroom and are also impacted by this work. So it's really a relational sort of two-way experience. So thinking about young people's and adults' well-being. Um, because grief impacts the brain, the body, and behavior, by extension, every facet of teaching and learning, grief-responsive teaching really seeks to support and empower the whole person. So thinking socially, emotionally, culturally, academically, really all of the facets of our lives and our identities are impacted by loss experiences that we go through. And I also want to name that this is meant to be sort of an umbrella term in that I'm not only referring to death related losses and that's something we might talk more about today that grief is a, a neurological biological response to many forms of loss um, there are you know living losses if we think about transitional losses things like um, changing um, housing or schooling situations experiences in foster care um, migration experiences, um, many different forms, and certainly the pandemic has also brought this to the fore. There are many forms of um, grief. And so grief responsive teaching is really trying to take this holistic approach to all of those forms of losses that ultimately impact the ways in which young people and adults are coming together in the space of a learning environment. Oh, thank you. That's really, really helpful. And thinking about you know, that construct as one part of our conversation. Marley, if we might hear from you, how do you define or explain ABAR pedagogy or ABAR teaching? So ABAR pedagogy is anti-racist and anti-bias teaching. Um, I think it involves understanding that our educational system is built upon inequities and then finding ways to disrupt um, what's been built into those systems. So I think of um, Bettina Love and she says it cannot be a teaching approach or method. It has to be a way of life. Um, and I think that that's a really good way to start thinking about ABAR work. Um, it is every single day in and out of the classroom. I think it requires um, deep introspection and continued growth and learning for everyone. And I also think it's when we think about ABAR work and its definition, we also have to think about it's not just those moments of marching that happen um, in our society, but more importantly, those day-to-day -day moments that um, have led to the protests that we've recently witnessed. Um, and so I think it also has to have that component of examining history 
and policies um, and our actions have to be rooted in those things. Thank you. I think again, that's super helpful for us just to have those two frames because my next question is all about synthesis and, and coalescing. So why are we having this conversation today about both of these? What is that interconnected and why are, why are both important right now? So I know that's kind of a, a, kind of a, a, a pretty deep, big, heavy question, but it's really the why. Why talk about these together and why talk about both of these topics right now? Absolutely. So um, Marley and I are both hoping to share some statistics to kind of help us frame this conversation around the why today. Mm -hmm. um, I always say in working with teachers and working with practitioners that loss and inequity are intertwined, right? And I was mentioning before in terms of definitions that we really can't have one type of pedagogy without the other because of those intersections. I also wanna name when we're thinking about grief, trauma, loss, these heavier topics, that it's equally important in practice to kind of balance considerations of joy and joy as resistance, right? And how do we kind of bring um, both sides of this practice into into action in our learning environment in a way that is centering equity but encompassing kind of um the whole of of human experience and so i want to just name that before diving into some of the statistics that really communicate the why and sort of the more dire need for these types of approaches so thinking specifically about um, grief and i'll say trauma i want to also name that grief is not necessarily always considered trauma. Um, trauma is something that's based in the nervous system and how an individual's nervous system sort of codes an experience and responds to an experience. So it's subjective. We can't, you know, look at a certain type of situation and say for a student, oh, that was traumatic or not, right? That's something that is very much determined by um, the, the student's nervous system's response and something that as classroom teachers, we maybe don't need to know, right? We're not suggesting that classroom teachers need to be the school counselor, need to be a trained mental health professional, which um, I you know, also am not. So I enter this work as an educator, not as a, as a trained mental health professional, but all of that to say, that when we are thinking about grief and loss in that broader sense, we know thinking about this moment in particular in relation to the pandemic, 1.5 million children um, are bereaved due to COVID-19 worldwide. Over 140,000 of those children are in the US alone. For comparison, that's the population of Hartford, Connecticut. So certainly a staggering portion of young people and this data, these data were from um, the fall of 2021, so pre-Omicron. You know, the situation has been unfolding so swiftly that it's hard for kind of science and statistics to keep up. But certainly these numbers have continued to ascend in the months that have followed and is a staggering number of, of young people, right? So almost every classroom, especially if we're thinking beyond death-related losses, um, contains many forms of, of grief, both when when students and teachers kind of bring those experiences into the classroom. And now tying into inequity that we know that BIPOC youth are facing much higher rates of COVID related losses due to the systemic health inequities that have always been present, but that the pandemic is further sort of underscoring or bringing out. Um, this is data from the CDC. We know that compared to white children, um, indigenous children were 4.5 times more likely to lose a parent or grandparent caregiver 
Black children were 2.4 times more likely and Hispanic or Latinx children were nearly two times 1.8 more likely. So wanting to just share that, again, these data have continued to, to evolve um, in the months that have followed. And then I also wanna highlight going back to this differentiation between the roles of classroom teacher and school counselor or school psychologist. Um, of course, we don't, we don't want to um, kind of presume that teachers should ever have to step into that role or have the same training or have the same responsibility, but there is a huge equity and access issue if we start to think about um, youth mental health. And so nearly one in five students, which is about 8 million, don't have access to a school counselor at all. Nearly 3 million of those students are also lacking access to school psychologists, to social workers, to any other type of support staff. I know that Marley also has some compelling anecdotes from her own time in the classroom um, of when this sort of lack of access kind of arose. And similarly, when I was interviewing teachers for my book, I heard many stories of folks who either didn't have any access to that type of support staff or were in moments where they, they were the only adult in the space, right? So for example, a field trip where a student's grief response became activated and the classroom teacher was the only person um, present to be able to kind of know how to respond in the moment, to protect that student's well-being and also the well-being of everybody who was witnessing this kind of charged um, loss-related moment. And so wanting to highlight kind of the, the power that having tools in our toolbox gives us um, as grief responsive practitioners and also again the ways in which inequity um, can lead to or perpetuate loss experiences. Thank you, Brittany. I love um, when I think about Brittany and, and just the educator that she is, I love that she led with the idea of, of joy, sorry, um, as an act of resistance, because I think that that's a piece we often overlook and it's so important. Um, and in my dissertation work, that has really been something that I'm like, wow, all the, all the literature that's out there, um, I need more of that reminder. So I, um, I want to share that reminder again and then share some statistics, um, some ABAR related statistics, just so we can ground our work in that data as well. Um, so we know that uh, Black preschool schoolers are three and a half times more likely to experience a school suspension, which is crazy to me. Uh, black students are twice as likely to be expelled. Um, the Trevor Project uh, talks about one in three LGBTQIA plus youth have been physically threatened or harmed because of their identity. Um, NCES data tells us that 85% of uh, educators are white women. Um, and what I found startling, but not really, was uh, school segregation between black and brown students has returned to 1968 classroom levels. Even though our nation continues to diversify, our student population certainly continues to diversify. So this really illustrates that great divide and that racial mismatch that we know happens in the classroom. Wow, thank you both. I mean, just pausing to consider the, the gravity of those statistics and the impact on individuals and communities and schools uh, is staggering. And, and also to stop and pause and consider joy as an act of resistance. And I think that's where we wanna take our conversation next is into 
How can we be more responsive practitioners? What are the strategies or the practices that we can put into place that really will support our students as their whole selves? Yeah, so there's two things that come to mind that I wanna just kind of name right off the bat. The first jumping off this idea of joy and Marley and I talk about this a lot, is thinking first about this sort of lens through which we're entering the work, right? And so how are we employing an asset-based sort of lens in the ways in which we're viewing students, their lived experiences, their stories, um, all of the knowledge and the expertise that they bring into the classroom, right? From their own lives and their own um, testimonies. And so how do we make space for that? How do we empower that? Um, kind of in the classroom in a way that is valued just as much as the classroom or curricular sort of content. Um, and thinking too about this asset-based lens, something that is very similar in grief-responsive trauma-informed literatures and also ABAR literatures is the harm of a sort of savior mentality. And so when we're viewing students through an asset-based lens, we're recognizing that they and their their loved ones and the communities from which they come carry immense resource and that we are not as, as teachers, um, saviors, we are not there to fix, you know, students grief or students adversity and grief isn't something that can be fixed right it's a process it's fluid it's meant to be lived through and and you know we can hold space for that but it's not something that we are viewing ourselves as the one caring adult who who can enter a student's life and thinking about role clarity thinking about healthy boundaries this is also a, a way to protect educator well-being and so if we think about something called secondary traumatic stress um, which is the toll that witnessing and receiving others sort of traumatic stories or grief stories can have on a listener, right? We can start to kind of um, internalize a lot of, of others sort of stress in a way that can become unhealthy for ourselves. Um, if we shift from, you know, I am the one caring adult, I am the savior, instead to how do we both recognize and honor and make space for students' own strengths and resources and expertise and how can we act as a connector um, so a facilitator of furthered connection and so connecting and this is getting into the actionable in terms of brief responsive practice how are we able to weave a web of connection for students and that means you know student to student peer connection that means students to colleagues you know which um, other teachers in the building which mental health professionals might this student relate to because also it's not you know, safe to assume that every student feels comfortable maybe opening up to us, right? We all kind of have different relational comfort zones and people who we connect with and who we don't connect with. Um, and so we as teachers, um, Alex Chevron Vanette, who's a, an incredible trauma-informed education scholar says, don't be a trauma detective, right? We don't need to necessarily know the specific details of a student's story. Instead, how can we create opportunities for students to self-author, to self-disclose at whatever level feels comfortable to them, accessible for them in that moment, um, and never kind of forcing that, but making space for that sort of articulation to be welcomed and to be honored. Um, and then we can think about beyond interpersonal connections, how are we able to facilitate connections between students and curricular content, students and extracurricular activities, 
students and communities beyond the school system, right? So thinking about community-based learning, how are we, you know, recognizing again, the inherent resource and expertise of the community in which we find ourselves learning. Mm -hmm. And so I start from that sort of asset-based approach. And then I think about a three-tier, I think I sometimes say this is the three-layer cake of grief-responsive pedagogy, not to be too corny, although Marley knows I'm, I'm a corny person. Um, is thinking about environmental approaches and then interpersonal approaches and finally curricular approaches. So this three-tiered sort of ascension in terms of how we're thinking about building wraparound systems of support in the learning space. If we start with the environment, um, again, this could be a three-hour conversation, but if we're thinking about how grief and trauma impact the brain and the body, we know that environmental strategies such as routine, predictability, consistency, um, starting and ending the class, you know, in the same way each day, maybe integrating um, mindfulness-based exit tickets, or maybe we begin every day with a five-minute unguided free ride. It's time for metacognition. It's time for students to tune into what's going on, you know, in their brain, in their body, um, doing like rose and thorn kind of emotional temperature taking, playing classical music as folks are writing, like all of these things are regulatory to the nervous system. And they start to create a classroom environment that is supportive or counteractive to the sort of stress and chaos that loss experiences um, can have right on our on our routine. When we lose someone that we love, we lose also um, routine, a sense of routine. We lose hidden regulators, which is a term used to describe these sort of sensory components that are attached to our relationships. Things like the the kind of surety of having a student, uh, a parent's car, you know, pull into the driveway every day after work. Um, knowing that a sibling will be there to check homework before bed, like these parts of our routines that are connected to our attachments that then we lose in addition to a person, right? So mm. how, can, how can we incorporate our own hidden regulators into the classroom um, in a way that supports that consistency? And then moving to the interpersonal, we know that human connection is the greatest antidote to adversity, to trauma, to grief. Um, relational resource is the, the best buffer against de developing post-traumatic stress disorder in the face of a potentially traumatizing experience. And that's so powerful, right? Like we are, the community is so healing, relationship is so healing. And again, that can look um, like all different sorts of connections. And so how are we thinking intentionally about interpersonal relationships, um, not as saviors, but as facilitators, as folks who can care, who can care within the realm of healthy boundaries, um, and who can build community in and beyond the classroom and provide that mentoring. Um, and then finally, curricula, and this is something that Marley might touch on as well, um, but thinking about both in what ways do grief, loss, and trauma manifest in our curricula, if at all, right? Is there is there literature that might prove challenging for students who are going through acute loss experiences? If so, how might we offer choice? Choice is also really big in a trauma context um, because experiences of adversity are often disempowering. We lack choice, we lack agency. Um, trauma is built out of situations where we either literally lack agency or perceive that we lack agency to change our circumstances. So something small, right? Like a choice-based reading assignment, um, content warnings, um, just being you know, transparent with students about the content that might come up and how are they feeling about that and how might we um, 
kind of build differentiation into a unit in a way that folks can challenge by choice. Um, not to say at the same time, and this is something Marley and I talk a lot about, that studying loss in literature can be so healing and can be facilitating you know, experiences for storytelling. If we're thinking about how do we bring students stories into the classroom, letting students know that their lived experiences count and that specific types of content that they might think aren't allowed in school actually can be allowed in school when scaffolded in, in a you know mindful way. Um, Elizabeth Dutro has an incredible book about this in terms of um, critical witness and testimony and again what counts and so how can we through literature through writing um, through personal narrative start to give that space and that stage to students um, at whatever level feels comfortable for them to share again that expertise that they bring into the mm. space. So Brittany, thank you so much. I mean, you just gave us a lot to think about, but I think in terms of a classroom, in terms of the, you know, the 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 walls of the schoolhouse or the walls of the classroom, those are within the locus of control of many teachers. Um, we can shape our environment. We can think about the ways in which we're developing that sense of belonging and those trusting relationships. And I think what you just mentioned about you know, curricular choices um, is so interesting in terms of what kind of choice can we offer? What, are, what kind of text are we sharing with students? And just that, that idea of really empowering teachers and really recognizing that asset-based lens, like the more we know our students, we can really be that advocate in that healing space. And so I'm really excited, Marley, to hear from you as well. What are some ideas or what are some strategies that can be put into practice in classrooms? So I'm gonna to try to kind of just follow Brittany's um, three layers because I think it's uh, it's helpful and an and, and, and easy, nice map to kind of follow. So if we think environmental and we're talking about ABAR work, I think we have to talk about how are we uh, how are districts retaining and attracting um, BIPOC teachers? I think that's critical um, because we have to at some point have a really honest conversation about shifting our teaching population to be more inclusive. Um, I think it's incredibly important and even thinking of my own experience, being able to be in a classroom and see someone who looks like you um, is, I think, something that we always have to consider. I think of Vanessa Siddle Walker, she's got a ton of work that, that speaks to, to this very idea. Um, so I, I think that's one of the things. And then when we talk about interconnectedness for DEI, when Brittany was talking about that, I was like, I think, and this is one of the things that I appreciate so much about um, my friendship with Brittany and working with her, is I think that, uh, I, there have been times when I'm like, do we as a white woman and a black woman, are we going to be able to align our thinking? And, I, and, and we can because we have had really transparent uh, conversations that really don't have boundaries. So I would encourage 
all of my uh, white colleagues out there, like go make friends and, and become, make connections with colleagues who do not look like you, because I think that that's such an incredible piece that we overlook, but expanding your own ideas, right? And when I speak about Brittany and I, I mean, it has gone both ways, right? But there are things that we can ask each other that you're never gonna find in a book and you're never gonna hear in a podcast. And it resonates differently because there's trust that we've built in that relationship. Um, I don't think that you have to know someone well to trust them. I mean, I, I think that is one thing I appreciate too. We had, we kind of just shared trust with one another from the, from the get-go and then saw the benefits of that. I think districts and teachers sometimes function on like, a, I'm in my classroom, I'm on an island, this is my classroom. And, that, and that's great to have that autonomy that you just spoke to, but I think we also have to remember to push ourselves and keep expanding our perspectives. Um, I think about, I, there was a teacher, name is Christina Grove, and she said, the sooner we can start seeing each other as brothers and sisters, the sooner we start teaching our children as if they are our nieces and nephews. And you teach mm. your niece and nephew a whole lot differently than you do just some average kid that you don't really have a connection to. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's so it. Uh, and so I think that is when I think of interconnectedness, I think of that, like, what can we do to teach our students and children as if they were our nieces and nephews? Um, and then the last layer, the curricula piece, I think anything that's creative, um, I, I, I think um, if you can bring in art, if you can bring in writing and poetry, I think about the Cento poem, which is allowing students to patchwork together lines from poems, which is wonderful because it provides lines for them. And so really they can then focus on how they want to patchwork those lines together, what message they wanna share through those lines. So the focus is really then more, um, personal and, and a great opportunity for them to share a perspective of a story if they choose. I think about pairing when we talk about curricula, we're so hung up on what books we're going to remove. Um, I have taught To Kill a, I know To Kill a Mockingbird, right? That's a, right. That's a controversial <laughs> one. Um, I've taught it for years and taught it primarily at what was um, considered a Title I predominantly Black and Brown school, and I never had issues. But as a Black educator in a classroom, we also had those conversations about the history piece. I brought in history teachers to talk to them um, so they could have that perspective. We paired it with other, like if you're teaching To Kill a Mockingbird, pair it with an article by Bettina Love or a poem by Khadijah Queen or, you know, um, so there are ways I think even if you have kind of, um, if you have to function in a certain um, confines in your district with book choices or curricula, I think there are ways through pairing and bringing in the arts that you can show those diverse perspectives that we know need yeah. to be present in curricula. Wow, Marley, thank you so much. I think, again, you also offered really concrete, tangible strategies that, again, I love how you you elevated the kind of the the good and the bad with autonomy, if you will, like there's that autonomy space, but there's also that collaborative space. And I, I think in, in the strategies that you shared, again, that locus of control 
Like we do have an opportunity to act on those strategies, but then again, we can't do it alone and we have to connect with others and we have to have these experiences that really broaden our own perspectives or bend our perspectives, as Ellen Keene would say, is um, to see things in a different way through new eyes and to hear other stories. Um, I know that we um, probably could just keep on talking and talking and talking all day. And it feels in some ways that we're just getting started and other ways that we've offered a lot of information to our listeners. I'm just wondering for those listeners who are really curious, who want to learn more, who are thinking, I don't know if I have resources like right at my fingertips. What would you two recommend that might be some resources of where to go to learn more either about grief responsive teaching or ABAR pedagogy or that intersection that we've talked about today? Um, I'm going to let Brittany end this one because I think she probably has way more resources for (laughs) responsive teaching than I do. But I think for anything related to ABAR, DEI work, um, Apollo Theater just launched a great uh, website. They have a resource for teachers. I think that's phenomenal. Uh, Brittany's website, Grief Responsive Teaching. Uh, Heinemann does a great job at putting up, uh, they, they just did a bunch of resources for pride and our LGBTQ plus um, youth. And so that was great. I think uh, Goldie Muhammad, organizations like Race Project KC. Um, I think also about because my mentor, um, it's interesting, I think about growing up, not having that mentor and during my doctoral work, finding my mentor. So now it gives me this whole new lens of the power that we've kind of talked about of mentoring and relationships and stories. So I would say work by him. His name is Dr. Christopher Spann. He's a historian. He does phenomenal work to learn about that history piece that we know is embedded in the system. Um, Dr. James Anderson, Dr. John Hale, they all have phenomenal articles and webinars through Rutgers. I think you can find the recorded ones. Um, And then lastly, I love podcasts. So I think your podcast, uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, I think about Asian American History 101 with Ted and Jen Lai, our national conversation about race are are a few. So I think those are some of the ones that I um, I would definitely point people to. Marley, thank you. People are, I know are, are scribbling in their notebooks just the way I am right now. And so I'll be sure to include this list in the show notes for anyone who's listening who just couldn't write fast enough. And as well as some of the resources that Brittany might share. Brittany, what would you add to that list? Sure. So snaps and claps first to all of that. I just want to reiterate all of those are wonderful <laughs> outlets. Um, some scholars who I really value and respect, um, Dr. Lauren Mims, who is dream without deadlines. I believe on Instagram, don't completely quote me on that, but if you search her name, Dr. Lauren Mims does extraordinary work specifically around um, black female identifying youth and also gender fluid youth. She had a recent um, a recent peer reviewed um, study come out that was really just extraordinary about folks experiences during the COVID pandemic. Um, so Dr. Lauren Mims, Dr. Addison Duane, who is also Dr. Duane on Instagram, and then Alex Chevron Vinette, who is Unconditional Learning on Instagram and unconditionallearning.com, um, also the author of Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education, which is a really stellar um, text. And then in terms of resources that Marley and I have 
created and or co-created. Um, my website is griefresponsiveteaching.com. I'm also at griefresponsiveteaching on Instagram and my book, Learning from Loss is available in both of those places and through Heinemann. And then Marley and I also have a website, which is collinsbunch.wixsite.com. And Marley, I don't know if you wanna also share your own website, um, but we're, we're out there. Yeah, Brittany, mine is just marleybunch.com uh, and I will absolutely share a link with all of these. I'll share something so you can link it, Michelle, with all of the resources. And then read, always read. There are so many phenomenal um, books out there. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mean, any, oh, there's so much, I mean, there's so <laughs> much. Uh, the Sum of Us uh, is another phenomenal one. So I would definitely start there if you're looking for books. And, you know, teachers are our lifelong learners and read all nighters. And so they're going to love this list and they're going to love having access to these, to these links in the show notes. But as we wrap up today, our final question that I ask all of our guests is what is your call to action? Um, what do you hope listeners take away and do? What are some, some big next steps or some small next steps, but what is it that, what would you, what would you encourage us to, to do moving forward? So the first action step that I would really encourage um, thinking about the both grief and trauma and ABAR pedagogies and their intersections is really self-reflection, right? So, so much of this work has to start with the self, um, understanding who we are, where we come from, how our identities and our experiences shape how we perceive and how we enter the classroom, how we relate to students, to colleagues, to our communities, thinking specifically about loss, you know, in what ways do our own losses and whether and how we were supported during them, whether and how we felt um, safe to share those stories, safe to share um, challenging emotions, you know, how has all of that, as well as our sort of cultural attitudes toward um, grief, right? Western society is, is um, a society that really sort of silences grief mortality discussions around adversity and so how have we internalized or not internalized that and maybe we don't you know maybe not every listener identifies with western culture or society and so um what can we learn about where we come from and how that shapes our own comfort level um, with this work and how we maybe do or do not approach it so self-reflection for sure and then thinking about destigmatization right um in what ways can we just become more comfortable with challenging our own comfort zones and entering hard conversations and those authentic conversations that Marley was speaking so beautifully to earlier. Brittany, thank you so much. Marley, how about from you? I would echo what um, Brittany said. I think um, it does start with you. I think that DEI work, grief responsive teaching, all of it really is grounded in yourself, which is really powerful, right? Because um, you said at the beginning, and it's so true, there's so much out there that I think sometimes it feels overwhelming. Um, I think when you're thinking about where do I start, there's a, a healthy, normal fear of uh, cancel culture and what if I mess up type of thing. And I think if you just look at it like I start with me, that's the most empowering thing to start with yourself. Um, I would say do the work, fill in the holes of your own education. We know that 
um, teaching programs have some work to do in regards to helping pre-service teachers learn about both grief responsive teaching and ABAR um, and DEI work. So fill in those holes. Um, look at it like you are a lifelong long learner and seek that information that um, you think, you know, what stories might might have been left out of my education or whose perspective um, and, and then fill those in. I would say ask questions, push yourself, don't be performative, uh, be intentional, be willing to hear some feedback um, and have those brave conversations. And then I think most importantly, like be a soft place to land for a student, right? Mm -hmm. That's, um, or for another educator or person, like that to me is the best. We're all functioning and doing the best we can. I believe that when it, as educators in this work. And so if you're like, I don't remember the term or I don't know what to do, just be a soft place to land for a student. I think that um, that goes a long, long ways. Well, thank you. Um, Marley and Brittany, it was a wonderful conversation today. We're taking away so much. So thank you for sharing your hearts and your minds and your hands with us. Um, we'll all have a lot to think about after listening today. Thank we you, appreciate Michelle. you so much, Michelle. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.